It is 10.39 p.m. on the evening of 4.20 of the year 2020, and I hope all of you uh, hearing this, whatever altitude you might be at, I hope that you are safe and socially distanced. Um... I am mostly using this space to do audiobooks of public domain fiction that people will not have run across, and I am linking this in the description that goes with each of these episodes. So if you would rather read, uh, you can go to what, for this one, will be Project Gutenberg, so you can get that turned into, uh, you, you'll figure it out. It makes it easy to get on your Kindle. If that makes you enjoy it more. And I am, uh, open to suggestions for other things to read. So if you want to reach out for that or any of the other reasons, you can find me on Twitter at time of posting. Um, ah, yes, spoiler plate. Uh, as in boiler, not spoiler, if you misheard that uh, statement on statements here, because this is one of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's horror stories. And not having read this in quite a while, uh, I'm coming back to it as well, somewhat new. It's the way I've been getting it, these, uh, but it was written from a Victorian mindset. And so short of it using direct racial slurs or something, I'm reading it these stories as they are and uh there are things of the sherlock holmes stories that you can see as archaic or uh, people have different opinions and stuff but some of doyle's less known fiction uh goes further in some ways uh like if you compare roll doll between the children's books that he's most known for and his fiction for adults, uh, which is sometimes extreme in uh, a lot of ways that would surprise you if you only know Willy Wonka and uh, the... What else? The James and the Giant Peach and the other ones that have gotten big screen stuff. Uh, at any rate, this is about Doyle. This story is part of a collection, as I said, that is linked to the podcast if you just want to read the damn thing. Uh, but the uh, collection came out in 1926 or at least is identified i don't want to get these things wrong but you know i don't know tweet at me if i misspeak uh the 
terror, blue, John, gap. It says, okay, originally published August 1910. Uh, and in the first line, it tells us, well, this came out in 1910. The reason for that diversion is that it says right in the start, uh, February 4th, 1908. So it says that, and there is this hurdle of a word, this ugly thing uh, that looks like you're supposed to say Pythesis, uh, which is P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S, which Google uh, tells me uh, is a archaic uh, for TB, tuberculosis. And uh, the top people also ask question is, what is Pythesis called today? <laughs> it says uh, an over-consonanted Greek word meaning a dwindling or wasting away, pronounced, oh, all right, pronounced tysis. Tysis is an archaic name for tuberculosis. A person afflicted with tuberculosis in the old days was destined to dwindle and waste away like Mimi, the heroine of Puccini's 1896 opera La Boheme. Oh, all right. So that's part of what happens there. Uh, that sounds familiar. So you can go chase that rabbit or stick around for the terror of Blue John Gap. And I really want to know if H.P. Uh, Lovecraft ever ran across Doyle. I've asked before and... Twitter, at time of posting. I would love to know if someone can turn up a letter uh, where he mentions Doyle. And if you know Lovecraft, you're going to see why in just a second. The following narrative was found among the papers of Dr. James Hardcastle, who died of Tysus on February 4th, 1908, at 36 Upper Coventry Flats, South Kensington. Those who knew him best, while refusing to express an opinion upon this particular statement, uh, are unanimous in asserting that he was a man of a sober and scientific turn of mind, absolutely devoid of imagination, and most unlikely to invent any abnormal series of events. The paper was contained in an envelope, which was docketed a short account of the circumstances which occurred near Miss Allerton's farm in northwest Derbyshire in the spring of last year. The envelope was sealed, and on the other side was written in pencil, Dear Seton, S-E-A-T-O-N, It may interest and perhaps pain you to know that the incredulity with which you met my story has prevented me from ever opening my mouth upon the subject again. I leave this record after my death, and perhaps strangers may be found to have more confidence in me than my friends. 
the collection this appears in, I've read the story already, the first story of this, which is The Horror of the Heights, uh, and just mentioning it because it has a similar format. The uh, found amongst the papers of the dead man uh, trope. Um, inquiry has failed to elicit who the Seton may have been. I may add that the, oh, and pronunciations for these uh, are, as they are, my apologies. Uh, so, Seton. I may add that the visit of the deceased to Allerton's farm and the general nature of the alarm there, apart from his particular explanation, have been absolutely established. With this forward, I append his account exactly as he left it. It is in the form of a diary, conveniently, some entries in which have been expanded while a few have been erased. We're absolutely going to come to a part where it says this page has been torn out or all of this has been vigorously erased. Oh, and well, holy shit, it starts on April 17th. And as I believe I said, uh, I said right at the very beginning, today is April the 20th. So perhaps we are going to come around to the state. How fortuitous. April 17th. Already I feel the benefit of this wonderful upland air. The farm of the Allertons lies 1,420 feet above sea level, so it may well be a bracing climate. Beyond the usual morning cough, I have very little discomfort, and what with the fresh milk and the homegrown mutton? So, just to be clear, uh, it says he died of Tysus, and the just if you're listening to this and to make sure everybody gets it, when he says the usual morning cough, uh, he has tuberculosis or TB. So the usual morning cough, I have very little discomfort. And what with the fresh milk and the homegrown mutton, I have every chance of putting on weight. I think Saunderson will be pleased. The two Miss Allertons are charmingly quaint and kind, two dear little hard-working old maids who are ready to lavish all the heart which might have gone out to husband and to children upon an invalid stranger. Truly, the old maid is a most useful person, one of the boilerplate... <laughs> Just reading it as it is. Yeah, anyway. Uh, the old maid is the most useful person, one of the reserve forces of the community. They talk of the superfluous woman. They talk of the superfluous woman. <clears throat> but what would the poor superfluous man do without her kindly presence? By the way, in their simplicity, they very quickly let out the reason why Saunderson recommended their farm. The professor rose from the ranks himself, and I believe that in his youth he was not above scaring crows in these very fields. Way before there were iPhones.
when scaring crows was a pastime. It was a most lonely spot, as established, and the walks are picturesque in the extreme. The farm consists of grazing land lying at the bottom of an irregular valley. On each side are the fantastic limestone hills formed of rock so soft that you can break it away with your hands. All this country is hollow. Could you strike it with some gigantic hammer? Could you strike it with some gigantic hammer? It would boom like a drum. I'm not sure that start of that sentence is correct. Or, uh, or possibly cave in altogether and expose some huge subterranean sea. A great sea there must surely be, for on all sides the streams run into the mountain itself, never to reappear. There are gaps everywhere amid the rocks, and when you pass through them, you find yourself in great caverns, which wind down into the bowels of the earth. I have a small bicycle lamp, and it is a perpetual joy to me. <laughs> of phrases right next to each other, a small bicycle lamp and a perpetual joy uh, has been pointed out a perpetual joy to me to carry it into these weird solitudes and to see the wonderful silver and black effect when I throw its light upon the stalactites which drape the lofty roofs. Shut off the lamp and you are in the blackest darkness. Turn it on and it is a scene from the Arabian Nights. But there is one of these strange openings in the earth which has a special interest uh, in Washington. <laughs> but, um, for it is the handiwork, not of nature, but of man. And it's interesting, just uh, in this collection two stories ago, uh, it was about goings-on in a catacomb. Uh, I mentioned because reading this is a uh, together work of a master craftsman uh, storyteller. However, that fits together. And just pointing it out in case the next story takes place in a tunnel. Excuse me. Um, I had never heard of Blue John when I came to these parts. It is the name given to a peculiar mineral of a beautiful purple shade. The, let's see. Is this a real thing? Blue, John, blue. Okay, Blue John. Ah, that is pretty. Mysterious Derbyshire Blue John. Huh. Um, future Adam note, uh, include Google search for Blue John. Make it easy for people to just see this. It's a pretty sort of rock.
striations and shit, white and blue. Uh, so this is taking place in Blue John Gap or, you know, Blue John is ambiguous in the title, but it's not the story of the lumberjack Blue John who's a vicious Democrat come into the land to eat all the whatever fairy tales. Uh, Blue John. I had never heard of Blue John when I came here. It is the name given to a peculiar mineral of, uh, uh, there's, uh, um, other Sherlock Holmes story that has, uh, uh, the stone is a made up thing, uh, which is the blue carbuncle and, uh, carbuncles usually, uh, red, but, uh, so I was just curious if blue John might be a made up thing. So now we all know a bit more. Um, geese. Um, beautiful purple shade, which is only found at one or two places in the world. It is so rare that an ordinary vase of blue or vase of blue john would be valued at a great price. The Romans, with that extraordinary instinct of theirs, discovered that it was to be found in this valley and sank a horizontal shaft deep into the mountainside. The opening of their mine has been called Blue John Gap, a clean-cut arch in the rock, the mouth all overgrown with bushes. It is a goodly passage which the Roman miners have cut, and it intersects some of the great water-worn caves, so that if you enter Blue John Gap, you would do well to mark your steps and to have a good store of candles, or you may never make your way back to the daylight again. I have not yet gone deeply into it, but this very day I stood at the mouth of the arched tunnel. I just said, um, caves and catacombs and tunnels. Huh. Okie doke. Uh, peering down into the black recesses beyond, I vowed that when my health returned, I would devote some holiday to exploring those mysterious depths and finding out for myself how far the Roman had penetrated into the Derbyshire hills. Strange how superstitious these countrymen are. I should have thought better of young Armitage. Oh my god, all right. That there is a Professor Armitage in, uh, uh, at least, he might be in a couple, but he's in the... Uh, the Dunwich Horror of Lovecraft. And this story is like purely Lovecraft with the found in the dead man's effects uh, thing. Should have thought better of young Armitage, for he is a man of some education and character and a very fine fellow for his station in life. 
I was standing at the Blue John Gap when he came across the field to me. Well, doctor, said he, you're not afraid anyhow. Afraid, I answered. Afraid of what? Of it, he said, with a jerk of his thumb toward the uh, black vault of the terror that lives in the Blue John Cave. How absurdly easy it is for a legend to arise in a lonely countryside. I examined him as to the reasons for his weird belief. It seems that from time to time, sheep have been missing from the fields, carried bodily away, according to Armitage, that they could have wandered away of their own accord and disappeared among the mountains was an explanation to which he would not listen. Excuse me. Would not listen. Um, on one occasion, a pool of blood had been found and some tufts of wool. That also, I pointed out, could be explained in a perfectly natural way. Further, the nights upon which sheep, on which sheep disappeared were invariably very dark, cloudy nights with no moon. This I met with the obvious retort that those were the nights which a commonplace sheep stealer would naturally choose for his work. On one occasion, a gap had been made in a wall and some of the stones scattered for a considerable distance. Human agency again, in my opinion. Finally, Armitage clinched all his arguments by telling me that he had actually heard the creature. Indeed, that anyone uh, could hear it who remained long enough at the gap. It was a distant roaring of an immense volume. I could not but smile at this, knowing, as I do, the strange reverberations which come out of an underground water system running amid the chasms of a limestone formation. My incredulity annoyed Armitage so that he turned and left me with some abruptness. And now comes the queer point about the whole business. Uh, yeah, we got a little time left. Um, I was still standing near the mouth of the cave, turning over in my mind the various statements of Armitage and reflecting how readily they could be explained away, when suddenly, from the depth of the tunnel beside me, there issued a most extraordinary sound. How shall I describe it? First of all, it seemed to be a great distance away, far down into the bowels of the earth. Secondly, in spite of this suggestion of distance, it was very loud. Lastly, it was not a boom nor a crash, such as one would associate with falling water or tumbling rock, but it was a high whine, tremulous and vibrating, almost like the whinnying of a horse. It was certainly a most remarkable experience, and one which, for a moment, I must admit, gave a new significance to Armitage's words. I waited by the Blue John Gap tonight for half an hour or more, but there was no return of the sound, so at last I wandered back to the farmhouse, rather mystified by what had occurred. Decidedly, 
I shall explore that cavern when my strength is restored. Of course, Armitage. God damn it. Armitage's. I'm going to just call him Artie. Artie's explanation. There you go. Artie's explanation is too absurd for discussion, and yet that sound was certainly very strange. It still rings in my ears as I write. April 20th. Today. In the last three days, I have made several expeditions to the Blue John Gap and have even penetrated some short distance, but my bicycle lantern is so small and weak that I dare not trust myself very far. I shall do the thing more systematically. I have heard no sound at all and could almost believe that I had been the victim of some hallucination suggested, perhaps, by Armitage Artie's conversation and also with his bicycle lantern a day after bicycle day. Maybe that had something to do with it. Um, Of course, the whole idea is absurd, and yet I must confess that those bushes at the entrance of the cave do present an appearance as if some heavy creature had forced its way through them. I begin to be keenly interested. I have said nothing to the Miss Allertons, for they are quite superstitious enough already, but I have bought some candles and mean to investigate for myself. I observed this morning that among the numerous tufts of sheep's wool which lay among the bushes near the cavern, there was one which was smeared with blood. Of course, my reason tells me that if sheep wander into such rocky places, they are likely to injure themselves. And yet somehow that splash of crimson gave me a sudden shock, and for a moment I found myself shrinking back in horror from the old Roman arch. A fetid breath seemed to ooze from the black depths into which I peered. Could it indeed be possible that some nameless thing, some dreadful presence, was lurking down yonder? I should have been incapable of such feelings in the days of my strength, but one grows more nervous and fanciful when one's health is shaken. For the moment I weakened in my resolution, and was ready to leave the secret of the old mine, if one exists, forever unsolved. But tonight my interest has returned, and my nerves grow more steady. Tomorrow... I trust that I shall have gone more deeply into this matter. And we're at 27 minutes of this uh, when it gives me 30. So we will come back to April 22nd. Uh, It's 11.07 right now for 20. Same date as the journal entry. Go figure. And we are back at 11.11 p.m. 4.20.2020. Probably the last time uh, I'm going to say that unless I finish the story before midnight. But I do not want to rush it for that reason.
April 22nd. Let me try and set down as accurately as I can my extraordinary experience of yesterday. I started in the afternoon and made my way to the Blue John Gap. I confess that my misgivings returned as I gazed into its depths, and I wish that I had brought a companion to share my exploration. Finally, with a return of resolution, I lit my candle, pushed my way through the briars, and descended into the rocky shaft. It went down at an acute angle for some 50 feet, the floor being covered with broken stone. Thence there extended a long straight passage cut in the solid rock. I am no geologist, but the lining of this corridor was certainly of some harder material than limestone, for there were points where I could actually see the tool marks which the old miners had left in their excavation as fresh as if they had been done yesterday. Down this strange, old-world corridor I stumbled, my feeble flame throwing a dim circle of light around me, which made the shadows beyond the... the shadows beyond the more threatening and obscure. I think that is grammatically correct, but it's... for the time, it's a thing people don't use that way anymore. Finally, I came to a spot where the Roman tunnel opened into a water-worn cavern, a huge hall hung with long white icicles of lime deposit. From this central chamber, I could dimly perceive that a number of passages worn by the subterranean street, uh, worn as in worn down, worn by the subterranean streams, wound away into the depths of the earth. I was standing there, wondering whether I had better return, or whether I dare venture farther into this dangerous labyrinth, when my eyes fell upon something at my feet which strongly arrested my attention. The greater part of the floor of the cavern was covered with boulders of rock or with hard incrustations of lime, but at this particular point there had been a drip from the distant roof which had left a patch of soft mud. In the very center of this, there was a huge mark, an ill-defined blotch, deep, broad, and irregular, as if a great boulder had fallen upon it. No loose stone lay near, however, nor was there anything to account for the impression. It was far too large to be caused by any possible animal, and besides, there was only the one, and the patch of mud was of such a size that no reasonable stride could have covered it. As I rose from the examination of that singular mark, and then looked round into the black shadows which hemmed me in, I must confess that I felt for a moment a most unpleasant sinking of my heart, and that, do what I could, the candle trembled in my outstretched hand. I soon recovered my nerve, however, when I reflected how absurd it was to associate so huge and sharpless, shapeless a mark with the trace of any known animal. Even an elephant could not have produced it. 
I determined, therefore, that I would not be scared by vague and senseless fears from carrying out my exploration. Before proceeding, I took good note of a curious rock formation in the wall by which I could recognize the entrance of the Roman tunnel. The precaution was very necessary, for the great cave, so far as I could see it, was intersected by passages. Having made sure of my position and reassured myself by examining my spare candles and my matches, I advanced slowly over the rocky and uneven surface of the cavern. And now I come to the point where I met with such sudden and desperate disaster. A stream, some 20 feet broad, uh, ran across my path, and I walked for some little distance along the bank to find a spot where I could cross dry shod. Finally, I came to a place where a single flat boulder lay near the center, where I could reach in, which I could reach in a stride. As a chance, however, the rock had been cut away and made top-heavy by the rush of the stream, so that it tilted over as I landed on it and shot me into the ice-cold water. My candle went out, and I found myself... Candle went out, an alarm went off. I thought I reset all of these, but I always do think that I have reset all of them. No, this is the last one. Hmm. Quarantine hours. All right. Um, candle went out. As thinking earlier with the people protesting the quarantine, they uh, are making me think of the Asimov story, uh, Nightfall. Uh, and there is a terrific radio uh, drama adaptation of that by uh, Future Adam X minus one, link that radio drama to this podcast. Uh, thank you, possibly a few days in advance. Um, Where was the track of her? Oh, oh, right. We're past this. The candle just went out. And just like Nightfall and like the story a few before this in the same collection and recorded uh, also in this podcast as uh, the new catacomb or Burger's Secret which has given me a craving that I still have to fulfill for burger. If the store still has meat or beyond burger, we'll see. Um, I'm not going out unless I need to, and I don't, I, until I need a few things at the store, I'm fine sitting right where I am. And lucky, very yeah, anyway, I hope everybody's safe and anybody who is still going out and doing necessary jobs and uh, frontline hospitals and doing delivery and food stuff, 
Uh, bless all you guys. Uh, we're going to get through this, and you all are incredibly part of why and how. But uh, the candle went out. Um, I staggered to my feet again, more amused than alarmed by my adventure. The candle had fallen from my hand and was lost in the stream, but I had two others in my pocket, so that... Okay, now we've seen this from the horror of the heights. I think it's it goes a little too far, but it is... Uh, uh, Doyle's definitely doing the same thing Lovecraft does, of the, like, cocky narrator exploring and going like, ah, well, but I have two candles left in my bag, and, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> Thus. So, okie doke, no worries here. Um, the... There, the formatting is weird on this screen with like the paragraphs are stretched out so it's a little hard to find the place unless I've marked it out. Um, that candle, two others in my pocket, there we go. I got one of them ready and drew out my box of matches to light it. Only then did I realize my position. The box had been soaked in my fall into the river. It was impossible to strike the matches. Fantastic. <laughs> A cold hand seemed to close round my heart as I realized my position. The darkness was opaque and horrible. It was so utter one's uh, it was so utter, like utter darkness, uh, not like a cow, unless there are evil cavern cows, uh, that one, that if one put one's hand up to one's face as if to press off something solid, it was very dark. He said, he said it perfectly well in the other story. It was like someone pressed uh, their hands over his eyes, the sudden darkness. I stood still, and by an effort I steadied myself. I tried to reconstruct in my mind a map of the floor of the cavern as I had last seen it. Alas, the bearings which had impressed themselves upon my mind were high on the wall and not to be found by touch. Still, I remembered in a general way how the sides were situated, and I hoped that by groping my way along them, I should at last come to the opening of the Roman tunnel. Moving very slowly and continually striking against the rocks, I set out on this desperate quest. But I very soon realized how impossible it was. In that black, velvety darkness, one lost all one's bearings in an instant. Before I had made a dozen paces, I was utterly bewildered as to my whereabouts. The rippling of the stream, which was the one sound audible, showed me where it lay, but at the moment that I left its bank, I was utterly lost. 
The idea of finding my way back in absolute darkness through that limestone labyrinth was clearly an impossible one. I sat down upon a boulder and reflected upon my unfortunate plight. I had not told anyone that I proposed to come to the Blue John Mine, and it was unlikely that a search party would come after me. Therefore, I must trust my own resources to get clear of the danger. There was only one hope, and that was that the matches might dry. When I fell into the river, only half of me had got thoroughly wet. My left shoulder had remained above the water. I took the box of matches, therefore, and put it into my left armpit. The moist air of the cavern might possibly be counteracted by the heat of my body, but even so, I knew that I could not hope to get a light for many hours. Meanwhile, there was nothing for it but to wait. By good luck, I had slipped several biscuits into my pocket before I left the farmhouse. These I now devoured and washed them down with a draft from that wretched stream which had been the cause of all my misfortunes. Then I felt about for a comfortable seat among the rocks, and, having discovered a place where I could get a support for my back, I stretched out my legs and settled myself down to wait. I was wretchedly damp and cold, but I tried to cheer myself with the reflection that modern science prescribed open windows and walks in all weather for my disease. Gradually, lulled by the monotonous gurgle of the stream, and by the absolute darkness, I sank into an uneasy slumber. How long this lasted, I cannot say. It may have been for an hour. It may have been for several. Suddenly, I sat up on my rock couch, with every nerve thrilling and every sense acutely on the alert. Beyond all doubt, I had heard a sound, some sound very distinct from the gurgling of the waters. It had passed, but the reverberation of it still lingered in my ear. Was it a search party? They would most certainly have shouted, and vague as the sound was which had wakened me, it was very distinct from the human voice. I sat palpitating and hardly daring to breathe. There it was again, and again. Now it had become continuous. It was a tread. Yes, surely it was the tread of some living creature. But what a tread it was. It gave one the impression of enormous weight carried upon sponge-like feet, which gave forth a muffled but ear-filling sound. The darkness was as complete as ever, but the tread was regular and decisive, and it was coming beyond all question in my direction. My skin grew cold and my hair stood on end as I listened to that steady and ponderous footfall. There was some creature there, and surely by the speed of its advance, it was one which could see in the dark. I crouched low on my rock and tried to blend myself into it. The steps grew nearer still, then stopped, 
and presently I was aware of the loud lapping and gurgling. The creature was drinking at the stream. Then again, there was silence, broken by a succession of long sniffs and snorts of tremendous volume and energy. <laughs> creature noises. Had it caught the scent of me? My own nostrils were filled by a low, fetid odor, and that's fetid without the sometimes O, an odor with an unusual U, unless, you know, British, uh, a low, fetid odor, mephitic and abominable. And mephitic means it's an adjective, especially of a gas or vapor, foul-smelling or noxious. M-E-P-H-I-T-I-C, methodic, and abominable. Then I heard the steps again, except, you know, spongy. They were on my side of the stream now. The stones rattled within a few yards of where I lay. Hardly daring to breathe, I crouched upon my rock. Then the steps drew away. I heard the splash as it returned across the river, and the sound died away into the distance in the direction from which it had come. For a long time, I lay upon the rock, too much horrified to move. I thought of the sound which I had heard coming from the depths of the cage, of Arnie's, Army's fears, whatever Armitage is, whatever I said before. Uh, excuse me. Hey, you. Uh, danke. Uh, Army's fears, Arnie's fears, something. Artie, Jughead, Betty, Veronica. Archie's fears of the strange impression in the mud, and now came this final and absolute proof that there was indeed some inconceivable monster, something utterly unearthly and dreadful, which lurked in the hollow of the mountain. Of its nature or form, I could frame no conception, save that it was both light-footed and gigantic. The combat between my reason, which told me that such things could not be, and my senses, which told me they were, raged within me as I lay. Finally, I was almost ready to persuade myself that this experience had been part of some evil dream, and that my abnormal condition might have conjured up a halluc an hallucination. But there remained one final experience, which removed the last possibility of doubt from my mind. I had taken my matches from my armpit and felt them. They seemed perfectly hard and dry. Stooping down into a crevice of the rocks, I tried one of them. To my delight, it took fire at once. I lit the candle and, with a terrified backward glance into the obscure depths of the cavern, 
I hurried in the direction of the Roman passage. As I did so, I passed the patch of mud on which I had seen the huge imprint. Now I stood astonished before it, uh, for there were three similar imprints upon its surface, enormous in size, irregular in outline, of a depth which indicated the ponderous weight which had left them. Then a great terror surged over me. Stooping and shading my candle with my hand, I ran in a frenzy of fear to the rocky archway, hastened up it, and never stopped until, with weary feet and panting lungs, which is not good for his TB, I'm sure, I rushed up the final slope of stones, broke through the tangle of briars, and flung myself exhausted upon the soft grass under the peaceful light of the stars. It was three in the morning when I reached the farmhouse, and today, uh, and today I am all unstrung and quivering after my terrific adventure. It sounds more horrific, but terrific, terrifying as well. As yet, I have told no one. Um, excuse me. Told no one. Um, oh, I see. Entry. Uh, I must move warily in the matter. What would the poor lonely women or the uneducated yokels here think Think of it if I were to tell them my experience. Let me go to someone who can understand and advise. April 25. I was laid up in bed for two days after my incredible adventure in the cavern. I use the adjective with a very definite meaning, for I have had an experience since which has shocked me almost as much as the other. I've said that I was looking round for someone who could advise me. There is a Dr. Mark Johnson who practices some few miles away to whom I had a note of recommendation from Professor Saunderson. And it's interesting, there is a Miss Saunderson in a, a previous story um, in... Huh. I think it was the other cavern story, as a matter of fact. The catacomb one. Now, isn't that something? To him I drove, when I was strong enough to get about, and I recounted to him my whole strange experience, and he apparently is experienced with catacombs and such things. Maybe. Possibly. He listened intently, and then carefully examined me, paying special attention to my reflexes and to the pupils of my eyes. When he had finished, he refused to discuss my adventure, saying that it was entirely beyond him, but he gave me the card of a Mr. Picton at Castleton, in the very English part of England, uh, very much most so. Um... with the advice that I should uh, instantly go to him and tell him the story exactly as I had done to himself. 
He was, according to my advisor, the very man who was preeminently suited to help me. I went on instantly to go and tell him the story exactly uh, as I had... Oh, I went on to the station, therefore, and made my way to the little town, which is 10 miles away. Mr. Picton appeared to be a man of importance, as his brass plate was displayed upon the door of a considerable building on the outskirts of town. Uh, I was about to ring his bell when some misgiving came into my mind, and crossing to a neighboring shop, I asked the man behind the counter if he could tell me anything of Mr. Picton. Why, said he, he is the best mad doctor in Derbyshire, and yonder is his asylum. You can imagine that it was not long before I had shaken the dust of Castleton from my feet and returned to the farm, cursing all unimaginative pedants who cannot conceive that there may be things in creation which have never yet chanced to come across their mole's vision. After all, now that I am cooler, I can afford to admit that I have been no more sympathetic to Armitage than Dr. Johnson has been to me. Except that I, I seem to fail to have noticed the part where he knocked on the guy's door and made an actual opinion. Uh, and we're at 26 minutes uh, before April 27 entry it is april 20th that april 27th of 1908 here's uh some time travel for you before i read uh april 27th of 1908 it is april 20th 2020 i'm going to flip the desk and be back with you uh for the continuation of the mysterious Gap of the Blue John. It is 11.41 p.m. April 20th, 2020. Uh, and we're going back to reading April 27th, a bit in the future, but of 1908 with the terror of Blue John Gap. April 27th. When I was a student, I had the reputation of being a man of courage and enterprise. I remember uh, that when there was a ghost hunt at Coltbridge, it was I who sat up in the haunted house. Is it advancing years? After all, I'm only 35. Or is it this physical malady which has caused degeneration? Certainly my heart quails when I think of that horrible cavern in the hill and the certainty that it has some monstrous occupant. What shall I do? There is not an hour in the day that I do not debate the question. If I say nothing, then the mystery remains unsolved. If I do say anything, then I have the alternative of mad alarm over the whole countryside or of absolute incredulity, which may end in consigning me to an asylum. The uh, always uh, K 
concern in a there it is story like this um you could have knocked on his door dude you went all that way anyway um on the whole i think that my best course is to wait and to prepare for some expedition which shall be more deliberate and better thought out than the last as a first step i have been to castleton and obtained a few essentials a large acetylene lantern for one thing and a good double-barreled sporting rifle for another the latter i have hired but i have bought a dozen heavy game cartridges and just back there with the way my mind works the uh Future Adam, another radio drama. It's uh, a gun for dinosaur. I, uh, the El Sprague de Camp story. I believe there's a. Is that audiobook? Yeah, the uh, Jurassic time travel uh, drama is on YouTube. That's a fun story. Link that one with this as well. Uh, it's about going on safari in the Jurassic, and that must have been written sometime in the 40s or 50s. Uh, great story, and it's been done by someone else. I will just recommend it to folks. Um, gun for Dinosaur. Um, a dozen heavy game cartridges which would bring down a rhinoceros. Uh, now I am ready for my troglodyte friend. Give me better health and a little spate of energy, and I shall try conclusions with him yet. But who and what is he? Ah, there is the question which stands between me and my sleep. How many theories do I form, only to discard each in turn? It is also utterly unthinkable. And yet the cry, the footmark, the tread in the uh, cavern, no reasoning can get past these. I, I think there's a period missing there. I think of the old world legends of dragons and of other monsters. Were they, perhaps, not such fairy tales as we have thought? Can it be that there is some fact which underlies them? And am I, of all mortals, the one who has chosen to expose it? Asylum, Recommendation, Delusions of Grandeur, May 3rd, 1908. <laughs> For several days I have been laid up by the vagaries of an English spring, and during those days there have been developments, the true and sinister meaning of which no one can appreciate save myself. I may say that we have had cloudy and moonless nights of late, which, according to my information, were the seasons upon which sheep disappeared. Well, sheep have disappeared. Two of Miss Allerton's, one of old Pearson's of the catwalk, and one of Miss Moulton's. Four in all during three nights. No trace is left of them at all, and the countryside is buzzing with rumors of gypsies, gypsy with an eye, and of sheep stealers. But there is something more serious than that. 
Young Armitage has disappeared also. He left his Moreland College early on Wednesday night and has never been heard of since. He was an unattached man, so there is less sensation than there would otherwise be the than would otherwise be the case. The popular explanation is that he owes money and has found a situation in some other part of the country where he will presently write for his belong whence he will presently write for his belongings. But I have grave misgivings. Is it not much more likely that the recent tragedy of the sheep has caused him to take some steps which may have ended in his own destruction? He may, for example, have lain in wait for the creature and been carried off by it into the recesses of the mountains. What an inconceivable fate for a civilized Englishman of the 20th century. And yet I feel that it is possible and even probable. But in that case, how far am I answerable, both for his death and for any other mishap which may occur? Surely with the knowledge I already possess, it may must be my duty to see that something is done, or if necessary, to do it myself. It must be the latter, for this morning I went down to the local police station and told my story. The inspector entered it all in a large book, and bowed me out with commendable gravity, but I heard a burst of laughter before I had got down his garden path. How English. No doubt he was recounting my adventure to his family. That doesn't seem like the place to go make a police report. It's a very different time. Just visiting the policeman at home. Uh, June 10th. 1908. <laughs> I am writing this, propped up in bed, six weeks after my last entry into this journal. I have gone through a terrible shock, both to mind and body, arising from such an experience as has seldom befallen a human being before. But I have attained my end. The danger from the terror which dwells in the blue Ga John Gap has passed, never to return. Thus much, at least, I, a broken invalid, have done for the common good. Let me now recount what occurred as clearly as I may. The night of Friday, May 3rd, 1908, was dark and cloudy, the very night for the monster to walk. About 11 o'clock, I went from the farmhouse with my lantern and my rifle having first left a note upon the table of uh, my bedroom in which I said that if I were missing, search should be made for me in the direction of the gap. I made my way to the mouth of the Roman shaft and, having perched myself among the rocks close to the opening, I shut off my lantern and waited patiently with my loaded rifle ready to my hand. It was a melancholy vigil. All down the winding valley, I could see the scattered lights of the farmhouses and the church clock of Chappelle, Chapel, Ladale, Dave Le Chappelle, tolling the hours came, the church clock tolling the hours came faintly to my ears. These tokens of my fellow men, 
served only to make my position seem the more lonely and to call for a greater effort to overcome the terror which tempted me continually to get back to the farm and abandon forever this dangerous quest. And yet, there lies deep in every man a rooted self-respect which makes it hard for him to turn back from that which he has once undertaken. This feeling of personal pride was my salvation now, and it was that alone which held me fast when every instinct of my nature was dragging me away. I am glad now that I have the strength. In spite of all that it has cost me, my manhood is at least above reproach. Twelve o'clock struck in the distant church, then one, then two. It was the darkest hour of the night. The clouds were drifting low, and there was not a star in the sky. An owl was hooting somewhere among the rocks. Hoo, hoo. But no other sound, save the gentle... This awful word, soft or sound, the gentle sighing of the wind came to my ears. And then, suddenly, I heard it. From far away down the tunnel came those muffled steps, so soft and yet so ponderous. I heard also the rattle of stones as they gave way under that giant tread. They drew nearer, er, er, They were close upon me. I heard the crashing of the bushes round the entrance, and then dimly through the darkness, I was conscious of the loom of some enormous shape, some monstrous, incohate creature passing swiftly and very silently out from the tunnel. I was paralyzed with an S, with fear and amazement, with a Z. Long as I had waited, now that it had actually come, I was unprepared for the shock. I lay motionless and breathless, whilst the great ma dark mass whisked by me and was swallowed up in the night. But now I nerved myself for its return. No sound came from the sleeping countryside, to tell of the horror which was loose. In no way could I judge how far off it was, what it was doing, or when it might be back. But not a second time should my nerve fail me, not a second time should it pass unchallenged. I swore it between my clenched teeth as I lay my cocked rifle across the rock. And yet it nearly happened. There was no warning of approach now, as the creature passed over the grass. Suddenly, like a dark drifting shadow, the huge bulk loomed up once more before me, making for the entrance of the cave. Again came that paralysis of, of volition, which held my crooked forefinger impotent upon the trigger. But with a desperate effort, I shook it off. Even as the brushwood rustled, and the monstrous beast blended with the shadow of the gap. I fired at the retreating form. In the blaze of the gun, I caught a glimpse of a great shaggy mass, something with rough and bristling hair of a withered gray color, fading away to white in its lower parts, 
the huge body supported upon short, thick, curving legs. I had just that glance, and then I heard the rattle of the stones as the creature tore down into its burrow. In an instant, with a triumphant revulsion of feeling, I had cast my fears to the wind, and uncovering my powerful lantern with my rifle in my hand, I sprang down from the rock and uh, rushed after the monster down the old Roman shaft. My splendid lamp uh, cast a brilliant flood of vivid light in front of me, very different from the yellow glimmer which had aided me down the same passage only 12 days before. As I ran, I saw the great beast lurching along before me, its huge bulk filling up the whole space from wall to wall. Its hair looked like coarse, faint, faded oakum and loose fiber obtained by untwisting old rope used especially in caulking wooden ships. Nifty. Um... um oakum, and hung down in long, dense masses, which swayed as it moved. It was like an enormous, unclipped sheep in its fleece, but in size it was far larger than the largest elephant, and its breadth seemed to be nearly as great as its height. It fills me with amazement now to think that I should have dared to follow such a horror into the bowels of the earth, but when one's blood is up and when one's quarry seems to be flying, the old primeval hunting spirit awakes and prudence is cast to the wind. Rifle in hand, I ran at the top of my speed upon the trail of the monster. I had seen that the creature was swift. Now I was to, f now I was to find out to my cost that it was also very cunning. I had imagined that it was in panic flight and that I had only to pursue it. The idea that it might turn upon me never entered my excited brain. I have already explained that the passage down which I was racing opened into a great central cave. Into this I rushed, fearful lest I should lose all trace of the beast. But he had turned upon his own traces, and in a moment we were face to face. That picture, seen in the brilliant white light of the lantern, is etched forever on my upon my brain. He had reared up on his hind legs as a bear would do, and stood above me, enormous, menacing. Such a creature as no nightmare had ever brought to my imagination. I have said that he reared like a bear, and there was something bear-like. If one could conceive a bear which was tenfold the bulk of any bear seen upon earth. And in his whole pose and attitude, in his great crooked forelegs with their ivory white claws, in his rugged skin and in his red gaping mouth, fringed with monstrous fangs. Only in one point did he differ from the bear or from any other creature which walks the earth. And even at that supreme moment, a shudder of horror passed over me as I observed 
that the eyes which glistened in the glow of my lantern were huge, projecting bulbs, white and sightless. For a moment, his great paws swung over my head. The next, he fell forward upon me. I and my broken lantern crashed to the earth, and I remember no more. When I came to myself, I was back in the farmhouse of the Allertons. Two days had passed since my terrible adventure in the Blue John Gap. It seems that I had lain all night in the cave, insensible from concussion of the brain, with my left arm and two ribs badly fractured. In the morning, my note had been found, a search party of a dozen farmers assembled, and I had been tracked down and carried back to my bedroom, where I had lain in high delirium ever since. There was, it seems, no sign of the creature, and no bloodstain which would show that my bullet had found him as he passed. Save for my own plight and the marks upon the mud, there was nothing to prove that what I said was true. Six weeks have now elapsed, and I am able to sit out once more in the sunshine. Just opposite me is the steep hillside, gray with shaly rock, and yonder on its flank is the dark cleft which marks the opening of the Blue John Gap. But it is no longer a source of terror. Never again through that ill-omened tunnel shall any strange shape flit out into the world of men. The educated and the scientific, the Dr. Johnsons and the like, may smile at my narrative, but the poorer folks of the countryside had never a doubt as to its truth. On the day after recovering my consciousness, they assembled in their hundreds round the Blue John Gap. As the Castleton Courier said, It was useless for our correspondent, or for any of the adventurous gentlemen who had come from Matlock, Buxton, and other parts, to offer to descend, to explore the cave to the end, and to finally test the extraordinary narrative of Dr. James Hardcastle. The country people had taken the matter into their own hands, and from an early hour of the morning, they had worked hard in stopping up the entrance of the tunnel. There is a sharp slope where the shaft begins, and great boulders rolled along by many willing hands were thrust down it until the gap was absolutely sealed. So ends the episode, which has caused such excitement throughout the country. Local opinion is fiercely divided upon the subject. On the one hand, are those who point to Dr. Hardcastle's impaired health and to the possibility of cerebral lesions of tubercular, tubercular origin giving rise to strange hallucinations. Uh, some ID fix say, according to these gentlemen, or ID fix, uh, fixated idea, uh, I believe, caused the doctor to wander down the tunnel and a fall among the rocks was sufficient to account for his injuries. On the other hand, a legend of a strange creature in the gap had existed for some months back, and the farmers look upon Dr. Hardcastle's narrative and his personal injuries as a final corroboration. So the matter stands, and so the matter will continue to stand, 
for no definite solution, seems to us to be now possible. It transcends human wit to give any scientific explanation which could cover the alleged facts. Perhaps before the courier published these words, they would have been wise to send their representative to me. I have thought the matter out, as no one else has occasion to do, and it is possible that I might have removed some of the more obvious difficulties of the narrative and brought it one degree nearer to scientific acceptance. Let me then write down the only explanation which seems, which seems to me to elucidate what I know to my cost to have been a series of facts. My theory may seem to be wildly improbable, but at least no one can venture to say that it is impossible, which uh, echoes a famous Sherlock Holmes quote. My view is, and it was formed, as is shown by my diary, before my personal adventure, that in this part of England there is a vast subterranean lake or sea which is fed by the great number of streams which pass down through the limestone. Where there is a large collection of water, there must also be some evaporation, mists or rain, and a possibility of vegetation. This, in turn, suggests that there may be animal life arising, as the vegetable life would also do, from those seeds and types which had been introduced at an early period of the world's history, when communication with the outer air was more easy. <laughs> this place had then developed a fauna and flora of its own, including such monsters as the one which I had seen, which may well have been the old cave bear, enormously enlarged and modified by its new environment. For countless aeons, the internal and the external creation had kept apart, growing steadily away from each other. Then there had come some rift in the depths of the mountains, which had, enable, had enabled one creature to wander up and, by means of the Roman tunnel, to reach the open air. Like all subterranean life, it had lost the power of sight, but this had no doubt been compensated for by nature in other directions. Certainly, it had some means of finding its way about and of hunting down the sheep upon the hillside. As to its choice of dark nights, it is part of my theory that light was painful to those great white eyeballs, uh, and that it was only a pitch-black world which it could tolerate. Perhaps, indeed, if it was the glare of my lantern which saved my life at that awful moment when we were face to face. So I read the riddle. I leave these facts behind me, and if you can explain them, do so, or if you choose to doubt them, do so. Neither your belief nor your incredulity can alter them, nor affect one whose task is nearly over. So ended the strange narrative of Dr. James Hardcastle. It is interesting having read these stories in sequence and uh, I've been hopping around some of the different Doyle stories and those of other authors 
but uh, this one uh, definitely has resonances with a few of the other stories previous to it in this little collection. And if you've been listening along with uh, these podcasts, then thank you for sticking around. Uh, And in any case, I'm glad that if you're hearing this, then uh, possibly you enjoyed this one. Again, uh, the essay that goes with this podcast will have links to the story and a few other things that I shouted out. And if you are interested in getting other public domain stuff, uh, read and uh, amplified, you can reach out to me on Twitter at time of posting. I hope that all of you stay safe and well and social distanced. And Lovecraft, I feel like absolutely, if you've heard this and the other earlier one from this collection at least this feels like if you, if you read this site blind uh would be appropriate with the bear but if you were given the story without an author on it i think that someone could mistake this for lovecraft so uh if anybody can confirm if lovecraft was familiar with doyle uh the world may be interested to know that. Uh, And in any case, again, hope you're well, stay safe, social distancing, uh, be well, and Zygazen.